Ladies and gentlemen, welcome once again to Oh Sopranos Podcast. As always, I'm Joe Spellman, and this is David Feudernet, and this is Paul Golius. And uh, today's episode is a little different for you, Oh Sopranos heads out there. Um, we <laughs> a little different, a little different. <laughs> Um, we are going to get to the, uh, season finale of season one next week, but for this week, wait, are we doing that? Yes. Yeah. Oh, this is going to be wrong. Okay. Okay. (laughs) Anyway. What's going um, on there, Spells? Huh? You okay? Uh, yeah, I'm fine. I just had a uh, stroke right there. Um, yeah. Uh, but this week we're going to give you a special episode, um, as we interview Ellie Honig. Uh, CNN contributor, former assistant U.S. attorney in the Southern District of New York, and he will be talking about his uh, involvement with prosecuting members of organized crime and how it relates to The Sopranos. Yes. Gambino, Genovese, <laughs> all Bonano. the others, Bonanno, Col- Col- Trafano. <laughs> Gibiano. Soprano. Nope. <laughs> um, it's going to be, it's a really uh, great conversation that we have uh, with him. Yeah, he was great. Um, so, uh, yeah, guys, strap in and uh, get ready. Yeah. Buckle the fuck up. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Grab on to your brajol. Hopefully we're going to be doing a lot of these with that that are going to be like one-off episodes. Um, so if you guys have any ideas, like, you know, things like, oh, you should interview, you know, my cousin because he swept the floors at uh, one of the uh, social clubs for uh, um, one of these Gambino guys. Sammy the Bull. Um, uh, right, feel or, free to uh, email my, us or tell us. Or- Hey, my father was killed by... <laughs> and if you yourself is, yeah, were killed by a mobster, please feel right. free to call in. We'd love to know that experience or, or where you bear, where what shallow grave you were buried in. My dad's cousin worked in the art department <laughs> on The Sopranos. Dude, I'm telling you, Michael Zansky, we're getting him on. <laughs> I looked him up. I looked him up. Right. Ellie Honig, CNN yeah, contributor, if you worked and then on the Michael Sopran- Zansky. Yeah, if you worked on The Sopranos, if you're uh, Dave's uh, uh, uncle, who's probably like 94 right now, uh, and you were a painter on the show, please. It's not my please. uncle. <laughs> it's my father's cousin, oh, dude. Great. I, I oh, have oh, said this before. Oh, same thing. Like every episode he said it. Uh, uh, all but, right, all right. Without further ado. Yeah. Ellie Honig is our guest today. He is a former state and federal prosecutor. He worked as assistant U.S. attorney for the now infamous Southern District of New York. Uh, And he's also um, well known now as a CNN legal analyst. Ellie, thank you for coming on. Welcome. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. I, I, I love telling mafia war stories, courtroom war stories, and I am a fan of The Sopranos. And a Jersey guy, so I want credit for that. And Very nice. <laughs> I have to start, though. I have to see how, how well-versed you guys are. I'm a Rutgers University grad, so what is the relevance of that to The Sopranos? 
Oh, that's when uh, Jackie Jr. he uh, robs the Jewel concert at Rutgers. Is that right? Correct. Yes. Yeah. Correct. Yes. Well, um, James James Gandolfini graduated from Mason Gross, right? That's or, what or, I'm or... thinking. Yes. Ah. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Yep. Very nice. Let's see, I. Yeah. I can't tell which answer was more like in-depth nerdy, uh, but uh, <laughs> oh, okay. I actually I, do both those things. Bro. All right, hey, hey, all right. And I Very got nice. and I got waitlisted there, so there yeah, you go. Joe, Joe got waitlisted there. <laughs> now that's sad. That's very <laughs> yes. sad. Yes. My, actually, my uh, my uncle was um, some dean of something. I'm a, I'm a terrible nephew. He, was, <laughs> he he worked he worked at Rutgers for a very long time. We had a lot of. Rutgers swag uh, in our house for some reason. Um, so glad to hear. So, that. Yeah, yeah. So I I have Rutgers pride just because I wore a Rutgers sweatshirt because it was free <laughs> as a child. <laughs> That'll do it when you're a kid. Yeah, yeah exactly, exactly. Um, so why don't we uh, we can get into Soprano stuff uh, in a bit, but we wanted to hear about some of your um, more high high profile cases or like ca- cases that uh, you're particularly proud of or you know that's sticking in your mind um in in regards to organized crime sure so let me give you a little bit of backstory so i came right. to the southern right. district federal as a federal prosecutor in 2004 i was 29 years old it's sort of worrisomely young now looking back at it yeah. um and the way it works at the southern district is you spend your first two years going through general crimes and then narcotics you have to learn what you're doing and then at the end of your second year there's this game of where do you want to go? What senior unit? And I had my heart set on organized crime for really, honestly, no better reason than I thought it was really interesting. And I loved the movies and the TV shows and all of that. <laughs> of course. It worked out. They had an opening there. They needed me. And so I joined the organized crime unit and I spent the next six and a half years there and eventually became uh, deputy chief and then co-chief of the unit. Um, so during my time there, I, I sort of tried uh, I, I've lost track, but a whole bunch of RICO cases, murder cases against mafia members from your soldiers up to your capos, up to your bosses. Um, and primarily, I, I worked on two of the five mob families, which was the Gambino and Genovese families here in New York City. The other three were kind of— Ooh, heavy household names. <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. I mean, there definitely are some household names. Um, I mean, the first, the first mob case that I got was— probably the worst, um, which was a huge takedown we did of the Genovese family. We took down about 25 members, um, and we did the math at one point, but the the total, the average age of the guys we took down was like 78 years old. (laughs) The New York Post did a headline, it's a cover, and it says old fellas, and (laughs) having fun at our expense at all these old Genovese guys coming in with walkers and dialysis machines and all that. No, not as not as sexy. Not as sexy. <laughs> no, no. But some of the guys that we prosecuted in that case were, were legends and, and, and right, raw right. legends. I mean, several of them have passed away. The lead defendant was was Maddie the Horse Ionello, who was um, <laughs> is, is dead now. And there were actually differing stories about why he was called the Horse. The the two main ones. One was that when he was a kid in Little League. Someone threw at him and he charged the mound and he and he knocked the pitcher out and someone said that kid hits like a horse. And by the way, this is a true way that mob nicknames happen. Like you'll do something when you're right, 14, right, right. someone will say that kid <laughs> does this and that's it. I thought maybe he charged the mound and then turned around and he kicked the guy like a horse. <laughs> like that would have been it. That would have taken some agility that I don't think Maddie had. 
Yeah, yeah. And yeah. then the other reason was I, I don't know what your rating of your show is, but there was speculation that he he had certain attributes in common with a horse. Oh, I that's, see. Honestly, I see. that's where my mind went, and I don't know what that <laughs> says about me, but uh, but yeah, okay. Yeah. That says something about you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But Maddie, Maddie also interestingly he he spoke with he he had the whole mumble mouth thing. I mean, when you heard him speak, it was real. I, I don't know if he did it before Brando did. It. I guess he did in, in <laughs> Godfather, but he really was hard to understand. Um, and that became a problem because we ended up with the way we made this case is we got a bug, like a, like a, an intercept. Uh, you know what a bug is, right? Yeah, 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 yeah of course. course. Yeah. Hidden recording device that we put in Don Pepe's restaurant, which is right near the <laughs> airport, right near JFK Airport, because every Tuesday night, these guys would ha- would all sit around the table. They had an annual night. It was very predictable. And so we got a bug in there, and listening to those tapes was a nightmare, A, because Maddie mumbled everything he said, <laughs> and B, because you had, like, constant ambient restaurant noise. So right. they'd be eating right. and slurping and, and silverware clanging and this and that. Um, so Maddie was the lead dog, and, and the number two guy was this guy, Cyril Perone, who also has since died. Um, and Cyril was... Um, Almost in a way, looking back, a, a mobster who I respect. He was kind of old school. He actually, well, to make a Sopranos reference, he physically resembled Uncle Junior almost to a T. I mean, if you Google Cyril Perone, <laughs> you will think it, it is Uncle Junior. I forget. I don't know the name of the actor, but that that character. Yeah, yeah. And Cyril yeah, was old yeah. school. The guy, the guy was like eighty something years old when we tried him, and we used to joke that he he did have. If you actually looked at his rap sheet, his most recent conviction was. He had a burglary conviction from like 1955 um, for when he was, I don't know, tw- 25 years old or something. Wow. But he was, so he he was, was an a, old school so smart, smart, smart criminal. Smart criminal. <laughs> he was. He really was. And by the way, the Genovese family, I should say, is known as – they're called, at least by us, the, the, the Ivy League of the mafia. Nice. A little bit tongue-in-cheek, nice. but there's also something to it because they are the best organizer, the smartest, the best money makers, they're the hardest to flip guys. Mm. The, the legend for a long time was no made guy had ever flipped out of the Genovese family, although later on we did get one. Um, but Cyril made a fortune on the streets for years. He was a loan shark, a gambling guy. Uh, he, he just got paid a lot of tribute. He wasn't that active. He almost never left the one one block radius. He lived in a small apartment. He had a social club um, with all this all this baseball memorabilia. I was actually a little jealous. I wanted to seize it in the case. <laughs> he had like DiMaggio photos and stuff like that. Oh, wow. um, nice. And Ciro, nice. so anyway, Maddie pled out before trial. We had a lousy case on Maddie. We pled him out for, I think it was about a year. It was kind of an embarrassing plea. And by the way, I should say, I didn't charge this case. I was brand new and I was thrown on it, which should have tipped me off gotcha. that there was problems yeah. with it. Right, right. But right. Maddie pled out, and we ended up going to trial against Ciro and three of his guys. And long story short, our evidence was just weak. It sucked. Our cooperator, who was a butcher who these guys were shaking down, uh, sort of collapsed on this. An actual, an, an actual butcher. <laughs> like it. Literally okay, good to know. Yeah. All right. <laughs> Old man Satriali. Yeah. I, later on, I started, started yeah. to deal with right, more right, figurative right. butchers, but right, this guy right, actually right. ran a butcher shop. John Vitali was his name. He was he was a wimp. He wasn't uh, he wasn't uh, a capable uh, guy, uh, as they say. But he had great steaks. Great. great <laughs> he did. Great no, people customer. said he had really yeah. good meat products. Yeah. yeah, I, yeah. I, I never sampled that. Sure. Um, terrible, <laughs> terrible witness, though. Um, and, and we lost the, the three of the defendants, three of the four defendants who went to trial got straight up acquitted, not guilty. We just had nothing on him. Now, zero, yeah, yeah. the jury hung. No, that means when the jury splits, when they're not unanimous. Right, right, and right, usually right. when you get a hung jury, it's like 11 want to convict and one, 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 one crazy person wants to acquit or something like that. This was two to 10 against us. 10 people wanted to acquit him and two 
wanted to convict him. So we oh. retried Ciro. We, you can retry someone in that situation a few months later. And we cut out all the fat from our case. We cut out all the nonsense. We just the first trial lasted about three months. The second trial against Ciro alone lasted two weeks. We convicted him. Now, here's the scene. So Ciro's now been convicted. He's 85 years old at the time. And by the way, Ciro <laughs> was super dapper. He would like he was a, apparently legendarily he was uh, like a like a award winning ballroom dancer and he would show up to court wearing like a blue leather jacket like he was kind of just had his style right even even at 85 he was still even uh, at 85 yeah yeah he was always still had it yeah the the agent the FBI agents who would would watch him and arrested him said he would sit outside and tan even if it was like 45 degrees out he would get the sun um so <laughs> anyway so he's now guilty and the judge says let's take a break but everyone knew what was coming, which was I was going to ask the judge to remand Ciro to send him into jail. And he was at a pretty good chance of he was going to die in jail, given his age and given the sentence he was looking at. So it was probably right. his last few minutes of freedom. So I remember going out of the courtroom to the bathroom and then I walked back in the courtroom and there's Ciro standing there with his lawyer, his mob lawyer. Um, and I hadn't sort of chit chatted with Ciro at all throughout the case. Sometimes you do chit chat with the defendant a little bit, but we hadn't said a word to each other. And he just I could see he was waiting for me. And he put out his hand and he said, kid, you did good. No hard feelings. And that was it. And I. <laughs> <laughs> you made it. You made it. Yeah, exactly. You're a made man. It was a little bit like that. Right. Like, uh, gosh, what was it? Oh, Goodfellas when he comes out of court. And you're like, oh. right. right. Oh, hey, you popped a cherry. Yeah. Mm. Right. Exactly. Right. So That's... then we proceeded to go back to our table and the judge said, counsel, what are we doing? I said, your honor, we moved to remand Mr. Perone and the judge threw him in jail. And Ciro got five years. He lived it out. He got out, and he died about a month or two after he got out of jail. So, oh, my wow. God. Wow. That was my first mob trial. Nice. Wow. That's, that's a great story. I love, I love that character of Ciro. There's, there's going to yeah. be a movie about this guy, I feel like. Well, he, he, wow. is better than, he is better than a lot of what you see in the movies and TV. So, yeah. Right, right, right. Sure. What would you say, um, like, in, like, in the prime of your career at SDNY was, like, uh, a trial that maybe took you guys a long time to get together and was like uh, a crowning achievement for you. Yeah. So now we're going to get into some violence. Uh, yeah. 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 With the Genovese family. All right. So here's the deal. The Genovese family, like I said before, is smart and they're savvy and pretty much everything that the mob does here in, in the Northeast is in New York city and New Jersey. And that's, right you know, a little bit in Florida, a little a couple outposts here and there. But the Genovese family um, realized that there was a lot of activity, street activity in Springfield, Massachusetts, which is best known. What's it best known for? Do you guys know? Basketball Hall uh, of Fame? Basketball, basketball Hall of Fame. Hall of Fame. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> hey, I'm two for two, baby. <laughs> yeah, we're all, uh, the three of us, the three of us are Connecticut guys, so. Oh, yeah. oh okay. All right. Yeah, yeah. Well, yeah, so yeah. let me ask you this. Do you know what the Mardi Gras is <laughs> in Springfield, Massachusetts? Absolutely not. No, no. Nope. no. It no, is this know. like it was this like three story strip club that is at the center of our case, and we used to joke ah, that, ah. as far as we were concerned, the, the most important landmark in Springfield was not the Hall of Fame; it was the Mardi Gras. Um, but the Genovese family, <laughs> lured by the Mardi Gras, among other things, decided to set up essentially a, a remote outpost in, in Springfield, and so right, they sent right. this guy Al Bruno out, who was a captain in the family, um, to to run Springfield, and. They had a really good thing going. There wasn't much competition. They sent a few guys out with Al. He was making money. He was loan sharking. He was shaking people down um, until Al ran afoul of the family in sort of the two 
most classic ways that guys go bad in the mob. One was, of course, like every mobster ever, he was skimming, right? You're supposed right. to, whatever your profits are, and I think The Sopranos shows this several times, you're, you're expected to kick a portion of it, put it on record, and kick a portion of it up to the family. Now, right. do they all pocket more than they should? Of course, they're, they're mobsters. And do they sometimes get rackets that they don't report, don't put on record? Yep, but you get in trouble for that. So Al was doing that. And the other thing was he was suspected of being a rat. And in fact, as we we put in evidence at our trial, he wasn't a, he was not a full cooperator, but he was talking to the cops on the side. By the way, another mm. thing that a lot of them do and is is fairly accurately depicted in, in The Sopranos. So Al Bruno uh, ran afoul of the family. Artie Nigro was the acting boss at the time. Um, I forget who the, the full time boss was, but they were in a sort of acting situation. And Artie got word of it and he gave uh, he gave the go ahead to kill Al Bruno. So Artie sends word to through this guy, Anthony Arolata, who's a soldier, tough guy, little guy, short. And Arolata was was sort of the conduit to Springfield. Arolata gets a couple tough guys. They get a, a, a crazy guy named Frankie Roach to do the shooting. And Frankie Roach <laughs> is, is like this. Sounds like a good guy. What's that? It sounds like a good guy. <laughs> that nickname, yeah, that yeah. that nickname's yeah, not yeah. not uh, derivative of anything about his anatomy. Right? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. No. Also, not his nickname. Is R O C H E Frankie? Oh, oh, okay. Oh, there we go. There we go. Destined okay. to be a scumbag. Yeah. Yeah. So Frankie Roach is was even the crazy hitmen in the family called him a cowboy. Like he was so crazy, he would do this job even. So they went to Frankie who agreed to do it for some minimal amount. I think it was a few hundred bucks and Frankie ends up cooperating. So I spent a lot of time with him and and Frankie basically was like, his attitude was like, when we asked him, well, why'd you do it? He's like, I don't know. He's like, this is what I did. Like it was a chance for me. So Frankie, and by the way, Frankie could never get made because you have to be Italian, true Italian. Right, 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 right. Frankie was like half Irish, half Puerto Rican, I want to say. Oh, um, wow, wow. And so, but he wanted to be respected and he wanted to be a badass. So yeah, yeah. Frankie basically, and we, we went up and saw the scene. So Frankie basically gets a gun, sits behind like a soda machine outside of Al's social club. Um, and Big Al walks out middle of the day and Frankie just shoots him eight or nine times point blank range and kills him. Um, and yeah, and then takes off and then gets arrested and then flips. Um, and so we spent time with Frank. <laughs> and by the way, one of the first times I met Frankie, you have to, you learn in time that when you're dealing with your cooperating witnesses, especially these mob guys, you have to check out their tattoos because these guys have horrible tattoos, like gun shooting <laughs> judges and things. And so <laughs> I, sure, I told sure. Frankie was tatted up and he was in his prison garb when I met him, you know, like the kind of loose frock. And so I said, all right, tell me about your tattoos. And he walked me through and he showed me what's on his arm. And then I said, now, what do you have underneath? And so he lifts up his shirt and it just says across his, his torso, it says G-O-D. And I said, all right, does that mean, are you like super religious and you believe in God? Or like, do you think you are God? And he goes, both. Um, <laughs> so that, that's, that's Frankie Roach. So he testifies, he, he flips and he gives us everybody else who's involved in this case. And in the cast of characters, it's, it's, Artie Nigro is the boss, Anthony Arolata, who's sort of the intermediary. And then there's these two brothers, um, Fred and Ty Gias, G-E-A-S, Greek, Greek kids. They couldn't get made. Really dangerous kids, though. So we indict all those guys on the Al Bruno murder. And then Anthony Arolata flips. And I said before, no made guy has ever flipped, but Anthony may be the first from the mm-hmm. Genovese family. And Anthony comes in and says... You know, we asked him about the Al Bruno murder. He said, yeah, yeah, everyone you arrested, you got all the guys on that. And then Anthony goes, um, 
And, you know, we killed Gary Westerman, too. And I don't know. I don't know who that is. I'm like, oh, OK, but the agents with FBI agents <laughs> with us are, are Massachusetts FBI agents. And they both they both like hit the floor and they were like, Gary Westerman has been missing for seven years. Nobody has known where he is. And Anthony's like, yeah, we killed him. He's like, we buried him in the woods. You want me to show you where? <laughs> <laughs> so um, so we got an order. You can get an order from a judge to take a guy out of jail if he's in FBI custody. So we right, did that. Right. And the agents took him up to Agawam, Massachusetts. Oh, yeah. Home of Six Flags, New England. <laughs> Used to be Riverside. Used to be Riverside. Wow. In yeah. fact, where this yeah. happened is like right across the street from the Six Flags, basically. Oh, wow. Nice. <laughs> so you guys hit some coasters. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Make it a full day. Right. Um, so here's the story. The guy did killed Gary Westerman was another sort of knockaround guy, like a wannabe tough guy, but, you know, in on crimes with him. But he also was a rat, they thought, and he was talking to the cops. And Rat's their word. I don't like to use that word, but but he was yeah, cooperating. Yeah, yeah. Um, and he was just, later on, Anthony sort of said, you know, they just wanted someone to kill. Like, like we just needed to up our game, basically. So wow. they tell Westerman, we're going to rob this drug deal who lives out by the woods. And what we're going to do is we're going we're gonna to put on ski masks and get tasers, and we're going to go through the woods, and we're going to break into the back of this guy's house, and we're going to you know, tie him up and rob him and beat him and steal his stuff. And Westerman's in for it. And so they're out in the woods, and they got their ski masks on. And we know this story from Aralata. And they all of a sudden, they turn on Westerman, and they shoot him. And, but he doesn't die, according to Aralata. He says he doesn't die. like It doesn't seem like the bullets are penetrating him. We're shooting him with 22s. And so Aralata says, me and one of the other guys take a shovel because we had they had dug they had pre-dug the hole in the woods. We took the shovels and started bashing them over the heads. And by the way, that's the moment when I knew Anthony Aralata was credible because he said it was me and one of one of the other guys. He could have just been like, nah, two of the other guys started bashing him with a shovel, and I was horrified. He's like, No, it was me and one of the other guys. Right, they bashed right, him over the head yeah. with a shovel, they kill him. And Anthony said, and we pushed him in and he sort of like fell into the hole head first, and then we covered it up, and that's that. So seven years later, we <laughs> and that's yeah, that's that's that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, as far as he's concerned, yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. so we send the team back and the agents, the FBI agents, I didn't physically go, but the FBI agents were were emailing me or texting me all day long. And so they get there and they're like, Well, there's 22, there's shell casings from 22 all over the place. So immediately he's corroborated. By the way, seven years later, wouldn't you think that like shell casings would, I don't know, get like buried or something in seven right, years? Right, right. Nope, they're right there. They're all over the place. And then Anthony sort of says like, yeah, here, you know, he walks into the woods and he finds some, some landmark or some tree or something. He's like, dig here. <clears throat> so the FBI agents, they get to, they start doing the dig. And by the way, the, the way they do the dig is they basically get like, and they take off one inch of soil at a time. And then they sift it through like, almost like one of those gigantic, like a pasta sifter, but a gigantic one. Because right, everything right. that's coming through it is evidence. And so I'm getting emails and like, first layer removed, nothing. Second layer removed, nothing. Third layer removed, nothing. And they're like, fourth layer removed, we hit a sneaker. Fifth layer removed, we hit another sneaker. And then as the day went on, they're like, we hit an ankle bone. We hit two ankle bones. We hit two shin bones. We hit two knee bones. Oof. We hit two femurs. And I'm like, okay, okay you know, I, I think you got him. Um, yeah. And so yeah, yeah, long story yeah. short, seven years later, they dug up Gary Westerman, and he was badly decomposed, but he was still wearing his ski mask. He still had a taser wow, on his wow. Nike. His Nikes were intact. We used to say Nike should have done an ad based on how durable. Was. <laughs> um, and when we did the forensics on it, they they looked at him, and sure enough, he had like several non-penetrating bullet wounds to his skull, but his skull was also cracked, consistent with Anthony telling us we cracked him over the head um, wow, with wow. the shovel. So 
I got to do the jury address in that case. We ended up trying um, Artie Nigro and both Freddie and Ty Gias. And I, I got to do the, it was the, in a way the easiest closing I ever did because I got to stand up in front of the jury and say, you know the expression, he knows where the bodies are buried? Like, usually it's an expression to mean, like, does this guy really know what he's talking about? <laughs> right. Well, in this case, Anthony Arellata literally knew where the body was buried. Uh, wow. Now, they all got convicted of, of both murderers, and they all got life in, in prison. Now, here's the postscript, though. So about, gosh, maybe a year ago now, Whitey Bulger got killed in jail. You guys remember mm-hmm. this? Of yes. course. And so the guy who did it, according to all the newspapers, was Freddie Gius. And so the wow. day that happened, and who was in jail because of this case, so the, the morning after that happened, my phone's blowing up and all my friends from the office are like, isn't this guy your defendant? And I was like, my first reaction was like, holy crap, I can't believe Freddie Gius did this. And my second reaction was like, of course it was Freddie. Like Freddie course, just yeah, almost killed yeah. for sport. And by the right, way, one right. thing that you do see, and I think this is somewhat accurately depicted in, in Sopranos sometimes, is like most mobsters only kill as a last resort and only if it's really to stop someone from cooperating or if it's just financially necessary. Like they understand that there's a lot of risk in killing somebody. And it's rare right, that you right. have murders kind of just to prove that you're a tough guy or for, for sport. But these, that murder of Westerman was really just almost for sport, for reputation. So it was kind right, of rare right, in that right. sense. But Freddie Gius uh, was a true psycho. I mean, I'm not physically, if you said to me of all the defendants you ever prosecuted, which ones would you least like to be like locked in a room with for, for an hour? It would be Freddie and Ty Gius would be very high on that list. So right, anyway, right. that is a bigger, a bigger scale trial than that is that is an incredible story. Uh, I'm wondering, do you have any sense of like what the state of the of the five crime families in New York are is presently? Yes. So here's one thing to know: the numbers really don't change. The mob cannot. Each of the five families has a, a set point that they're allowed to have, and and it varies by family. I think the Genovese family is the biggest. They have about 150 made guys. The other families are, are between 100 and 150. But they can't just decide we're going to expand. We're going to add 10 new guys. Right, you, right. Literally, someone has to die in order to for a new person to get made. And I forget if they show this on on the show on Sopranos, but we at times would actually intercept the lists and they, and they on the left-hand column would be here's the six guys who died this year. And on the right-hand column would be, and here's who we propose to replace each of these guys. So they wow. can't decide to get bigger, but by the same token, they don't get smaller. I mean, literally someone has to die in order for someone to get in. And there's always, it, it's kind of in a weird way, akin to like people trying to become partners at a law firm. Like you work your whole <laughs> career, it's the ultimate goal. And then when your time's up, they will tap you. Um, right, right, so right. They're, they're certainly not hurting for members. They still have the same number as they ever. They're le- definitely less violent as time passes. Um, okay. There were big wars in New York City in the 90s where they were killing each other, the Colombo right, family. Right. And there has not been a confirmed mob hit. It's a little bit debatable, but in years, um, wow. a, a mob sanctioned hit. I mean, the, the, the boss of the Gambino, I think it was the Gambino family was killed within the last year, but it turned out to be some crazy kid who killed them, not over. Yeah, that, was a, guy St- that, that. was a guy yeah. in Staten Island, right? It was something like, yeah, yeah, yeah. I remember I, uh, I'm i originally he, he, from Staten Island. It was Island, like his, his niece's like, boyfriend or something. Like, yeah. Right, right. A weird brainwashed like, conspiracy <laughs> theory guy or something. <laughs> um, that's, that's very on brand for uh, 2019. Right. Okay. Um, so they don't, yeah, exactly. It is. Um, they don't, they just, they're not as, as violent anymore. And I think the reason right, for that is right. it's just bad business, right? I mean, mm. if you kill someone, they know they're, that's the best. Mm. Two things happen if you kill somebody. 
and cooperators guys will tell you this. A, you get heat, and they don't want heat, right? That's right, that's right. what excites the FBI and us prosecutors. And B, that's where you get cooperators, really. Like, people do sometimes flip on minor charges, but by and large, when people flip is when, they, when they're looking at a murder charge, because that's life. Like, most of these guys, you charge them with extortion, loan sharking, they're like, yeah, all right, fine, who cares? Like, if I get convicted, I'll go do five years in jail, I'll do it standing on my head, and I'll come out. But murder, right, right. murder is life, and murder is where you flip people. So it's bad for business. Um, yeah, I mean, I think they are on the decline overall. I don't think there is as much of a force. I don't think they're as scary. And another factor is the rise of other ethnic groups. The Albanian right. mob is, is getting really big and scary. And I did a Genovese case where they were doing home invasions of drug dealers and, and business people who kept cash in their house. But what they were doing is the Genovese family, again, smartly, was basically outsourcing. They were hiring these tough um, Albanian kids to go in and actually do the robberies because it was wow. dangerous and the Albanians were willing and, and capable of doing it. And then, of course, the Albanians would do the robberies and then pocket half the proceeds and then, you know, and then lie about what they got out of it. But the Albanians are on the rise. The Russians are on the rise. Even in Chinatown, I mean, they don't come into direct contact with the, with the Italians, but there's Chinatown gangs. So I would say overall they're on the decline, it, the Italian mafia. Um, and it's getting harder and harder for them to find business. I mean, look, one of their big businesses, right. one of their huge moneymakers used to be sports gambling. But now you I was going to say, yeah. You can do it on your phone now. Yeah. <laughs> right, 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 right. right. Um, and the sports gambling feeds the loan sharking because the way they right. get right. people to take these ridiculous loans, you, people don't go to take loans by and large from the mob because they want to like expand their business. I mean, sometimes, but by and large, it's okay. You lost $10,000 to me on the Jets game. The kid doesn't have it. And he goes, okay, well, I'll tell you what, you take a loan now for the $10,000 and you owe me two points, meaning 2% right, right. interest every week. And then yep. they really have you. So with the with the decline of sports gambling comes you know comes the, the, the decline of loan sharking. On the flip side, the FBI has really taken resources away from from organized crime. I mean, when I started, we, there was a separate FBI squad for each of the five families. By the time I left, there was they had consolidated down to two or three squads, and now I think it's just one squad that covers all five families. So oh, wow. Uh, wow. both are on the decline. That's I, good um, to hear. <laughs> uh, yeah, I have to ask you, like, as somebody that worked. Um, for SDNY, uh, R Rudy Giuliani was like such a hero of mob busting. I mean, that was like how he made his name um, and how he launched his political career. Um, with with you and and maybe other um, like SDNY alum or or people that maybe are are still there that you talk to, like, what is the general like? Um, like uh, consensus about like because I, I i feel like he, he must still be like respected in some ways for the work he did while he was a prosecutor yeah it, it's a great question it's getting harder and harder to, to uh, <laughs> separate you know what i mean right i mean look yeah. rudy giuliani what is a legendary figure in the southern district he was the u.s attorney in the 80s he, he right. absolutely set the bar for how you pursue the mob how you use the racketeering statute how you go after you, you decapitate, you go after the, the bosses. He was fearless. Um, that said, for a lot of reasons, and, and what we're seeing now is really just the culmination or maybe the low point of it. But over right, the right. years, he, he's sort of gone off the rails a little bit in a lot of ways. Mm -hmm. I mean, he, he, he's had an arrogance about him. And um, and now he's boy, he's I mean, he's under criminal investigation reportedly. Um, right, I think right. there's a sense of certain sense of sadness about it. I mean, the Southern District is kind of a little bit of an insular, almost mob-like culture of our own, um, where we all are loyal to one another. And 
feels like a right. family. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, exactly. And anyone who came before is treated with respect, especially if it was if it was a, a U.S. attorney like Rudy was. I mean, his, his portrait's up on the wall, along with every other U.S. attorney. Right, um, right. And now to see him not just sort of off the rails or acting kooky, but in legitimate trouble and really – I mean, gosh, he's the driving engine of this whole Ukraine thing. I mean, his I know it's insane. It's going to lead to an impeachment in all likelihood. Yep. Well, and like, and and I I imagine like the what made him such a successful U.S. attorney are things that have gotten him in, into trouble in in his later years because because of that arrogance and because of that motivation for power. You know, it it, it could be, but I think he's what he's lost is his radar. I mean, I think he he, right. he used to have a very strong sense of right and wrong, and that's why I think a lot of us are sort of um, disgusted by what mm. he's done because he's come so close to and and I think crossed the line so many times. And one of the things you get from years of being a prosecutor is a good sense of I'm not if it's a gray area, I'm not even going there. I, I'm right. you know never mind potentially breaking the law. So it, there is a sense of 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 shock and surprise, but also a little bit of just disappointment. I mean, he's bringing it on himself. It's not like he's being picked on. I mean, all this stuff that's happening to him, he's brought on himself and he knows better. He should know better. He was a prosecutor for a long time. So it's unlike anything I've seen. I I don't know if any U S attorneys ever been charged. I mean, he's not been charged yet. Maybe he won't be, but he's certainly under criminal investigation by the Southern district. Right. Wow. I mean, it has like, what's the, um, the TV show, um, um, with the guy from six feet under with, um, where he's a serial killer, about. but he's uh, also Dexter. Like Dexter. De- oh, Dexter. It has like yeah. a very Dexter feel to it. Like the irony of it. It's like <laughs> he has become what he prosecuted. Like he's, right. yeah. yeah. Uh, it's crazy. And by the way, he, and Donald Trump, I mean, I've said this on air, but they, they use mob tactics in a lot of ways. I mean, the way they try to intimidate witnesses, right? The thing right, when Michael right. Cohen was going to testify, they say, oh, watch your father-in-law. I mean, Michael Michael Cohen is like straight out of like uh, central casting of like a, a yeah exactly <laughs> exactly yeah a hundred percent no he he's you can't make this guy up and by the way the the thing about Michael Cohen that's so great is like there are so many hanger on hangers on around the mob and lawyers in particular um, who are borderline criminals themselves um, and right. I, I, I you know it, it's it's funny to see such a such a classic example of that in Michael right. Cohen. Right, right, yeah. Right. He just like he he wanted so bad to be like a tough guy. Yeah, yeah. No, absolutely. Um, uh, this was all great stuff. I think we can maybe kind of uh, ease into more Sopranos related questions. I know that you had initially said to me um, that people often ask you, given your legal experience, what is like the most authentic uh portrayal of the mob in tv and movies and and you said sopranos but you tell you you tell me maybe not for the reasons you might think so why 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 is sopranos uh the the most authentic portrayal of uh of of mob life so i think the thing about sopranos that 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 the show captures so well about the mob life is what a grind it is right the, mm-hmm. the a lot of the movies and and TV shows portray it as this glamorous or, or extraordinarily violent, explosive type of existence. And there is a lot. Right. Of, there's more violence in The Sopranos than there would be in, in real life. But sure, sure. what it captures so beautifully is that sense of just everyday stress and grind that you see, especially yeah, yeah, Tony yeah. going through. Right. Every guy and also all the hangers on all the guys 
around Tony. And I don't I don't even mean just like Paulie and those guys. I mean like the restaurant owner guy and the bro, right, you know, right, what I mean? all right, these right. hangers on that are trying to make a buck, trying to find some score, scrapping day to day, always worried about their security, their status. Am I in? Am I out? Am I right. is he you know is he okay with me? I mean, what what Tony goes through day to day, having to have these meetings and people who are disappointed and people who are angry and people who are rogue and he's got to manage them. Um, mm-hmm. I think it, it it captures that aspect of the life brilliantly. I mean, they're yeah. really when when you get to talk to these guys when they cooperate and you spend hours and days with these guys when they cooperate, like you will you will see very few of them love and miss the life. Right. In, in other right. words, most yeah. of them, it's not like the end of Goodfellas when, when Ray Liotta's like, ah, now I'm just a schnook. It, yeah, it, right. It's really more, more like the opposite. They're like, oh my God, I can't believe I had to do that. Like, I'm so yeah. liberated to not be part of it anymore. Right. Um, right. So right. I think, I think the show really does a great job of capturing the less sexy side of the mob, the sort of the day to day grind of it. Right. Right. Crime doesn't pay. Like I always say, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Joe always <laughs> says that. Yeah. <laughs> Um, uh, how did you feel, uh, as a prosecutor of the, like, portrayal of civilians on the show? I feel like, um, lawyers and, and, uh, law enforcement especially are, like, made to look like the, like, the, like, the biggest losers in the world sometimes. <laughs> yeah, look, I think that goes with the territory, right? You understand right, right. everything's flipped in these mob movies and shows, right? I mean, you're, right, you're right, rooting right, for right. Tony and you're like again, rooting against the uh, the FBI agents. I mean, I, I did have definitely a laugh. Like one of the great scenes is when they finally get that bug into the lamp, right? And then yeah, they yeah, yeah, yeah. college. She oh, my God. Right, right. I mean, I, I could totally empathize with that. Like that kind of thing has happened. Or you get a bug. I told, I told you before, we, we did a bug. And it was, uh, you know, it was in a restaurant and it was like, oh, God, we can't hear a damn thing. Um, right, 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 so right, right. that absolutely happens. But I mean, one of the funny things about trying a mob guy is like in like an audience watching a movie, there is a certain attraction to them. And you have to juries can I bet, sort yeah. of become enamored with them in some circumstances. I mean, right, for example, right. there are mob guys I tried who were just not at all likable, charismatic, charming. And by the way. The way the jury gets to know them primarily is if you have them on tape. That's when they hear the voice. None of these guys will ever testify. So right, I've right. had mob cases where the guy sounds like a thug. The guy sounds angry. The guy sounds, you know, uh, horrible. You play those tapes and the jury turns off. But then I've had cases where the guy's kind of charismatic. I mean, Ciro Perone, who I mentioned before, was like was one of them. I mean, he was this charming guy. He was this good-looking older guy who dressed sharp. And he was a funny storyteller. On the tapes we played, like, he'd be telling these stories about how they – how they beat the crap out of a guy, but it was kind of funny and captivating. We were like, I think the jury's falling in love with this guy. <laughs> yeah. And how do you, and how do you like, how do you counterbalance that as a prosecutor? I mean, you have to just bring it back to reality. You have to remind them right, like, this right. isn't a movie. And I mean, you, what you really need to counterbalance them. And the reason it was so hard in serious cases, you need violence. You need an act of violence. Right. Cause that'll, sure, bring sure. It, that'll bring, bring it down real quick. And in Ciro's case, we didn't really have an act of violence that we could pin on him. So it was really hard. We were, we ended up just getting him on like extortion, loan sharking type stuff. Um, right. So uh, so that's a you know the movies actually I think influenced the way that juries look at these guys, um, and also juries are afraid of them. I had a case once against a guy named Angelo Prisco, and in the middle of jury deliberation, it was a murder case, but the but the the jurors sent out a note saying we're too afraid to convict him basically because we're afraid oh of what he gosh. might do. I mean they did end up convicting him, but did you did you have like because uh, I mean there's um 
you know, part on the show where the character Eugene, uh, when Uncle Junior is on trial, goes like finds one of the jurors and confronts him in a store. Did you did you have situations like that, or is that kind of like not that common? Yeah, it's a good question. So, um, y- yes, not not that well, not that in in any case that I ever was able to prove. I mean, only ever really lost one or two mob trials, but those were not, there was no way there was, there was jury tampering. There was enough jurors against us in those cases that it wasn't tampering. Um, (laughs) But when we tried John Gotti Jr., which is one of the ones that hung, uh, we did prove, I think very, very clearly that back in the nineties, the Gambino family absolutely fixed a jury in a case against one of their captains. I'm blanking on the guy's name, but there was a powerful captain who went on trial and they definitely got to a juror or two in that case. I mean, the strange thing is, I, I hesitate to say this, but the penalties are pretty low for tampering with the jury. And so really? we were always wow. very scared of that. We would have... You guys hear that? You guys hear that? Dude, that's good to know. <laughs> <laughs> Noted. <laughs> yeah. Hey, audience, audience, <laughs> listeners. Ellie, Hon- Ellie Honig condones <laughs> jury tampering. But you will go to jail if you tamper with the jury. <laughs> but not for that long. But not for that. Kind of worth it. <laughs> um, they they tried i mean we had a cooperating witness john a light who told us about how they would do it they would like in in the cases in brooklyn there was a certain par- uh, park across the street and they would sit on a certain bench and try to watch where the jurors went i mean a lot of the cases i did we had anonymous jurors so they couldn't find them as easily but right, right. no i mean it definitely is something that happens and that they try to do that is accurate one thing that does not happen though in my experience is threats or attacks on prosecutors people always ask like were you ever threatened were you ever afraid no never happened because it would be it's bad for business for them like right. they don't get anything right. out of it i mean right. if, if the rule was like if you killed me the case gets dismissed i'd be dead 50 <laughs> times right. But right right if they did something to me they just plug in the next one of me and all holy hell will come down on them for it so it's it's bad business for them so they they really don't go after and in fact they, they really and i think this is sort of reflected on the show too they don't really go after civilians much either like they're not just yeah. going to attack you to attack you. Like the people that get hurt by the mob are one mobsters themselves, mm, um, right, right, and and two people who try to um, who interfere with their business, right? Who either take loans and don't pay them. You won't get killed for that, but but you could get beat for that. Right, um, sure, or or people who rob them or rob someone who's connected to them. I mean, I think that was right. Didn't one of the kids rob a poker? Yeah, we've seen that in the show. Yep. Yes. Yep. And they took him out. That scene, that's one of the scariest scenes where they take the kid out. It's wow. that's actually <laughs> so this is the kid who robs a poker game and then they find him and take him out to like the woods in a snack bar and shoot him, right? Well, no, you're thinking of uh, Matthew you're mixing up Jackie Jr. Yeah. and uh, Matthew Belvalacqua. So, so the so, kid they take out to the snack bar uh tries to kill Christopher. Right, right. Yes. Okay. Okay. And, All right. Uh anyway. But they do kill but they do kill um the two guys that robbed the the poker game as yes. well. Yep. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. So that one one in broad daylight. <laughs> <laughs> and it's a great line, right? When the kid takes a drink and he's like, "You sure you want to diet?" He's like, <laughs> "Right. Uh, yeah. The last thing you're ever going to have or something like right. that." Right. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Great so safety. um so but we actually I did a murder case where the guy had robbed I mean it's gosh, the murder happened in 92. 
but we tried it in 09. We tried it 17 wow. years later, oh, but the, the victim had robbed the card game of a made guy, actually. It was exactly the same oh, wow. uh, factual scenario. And they, they, they lured him into a van and turned around and shot him and left him in the van in, in a parking lot of a McDonald's in the Bronx. And wow. 17 years Jeez. later, we flipped the shooter, and he told us who, who all was in on it. So a little yeah. bit of uh, art imitating life. Now, now, it, now, you said, like, um, when people get generally like when people get flipped there's sort of relief do you find that like there's a semblance of relief when guys come clean about murders they did do you see like sort of like oh i'm like that that murder was stressing me out for 17 years like <laughs> it's good to like get it off my chest <laughs> no 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 in the sense that they don't feel guilty about it it's not like right, oh, right. i have to get this off my chest but right, yes right, in right, the right, sense right. that this is the mobster's mindset but yes in the sense that they're pissed off that they've been arrested or, or convicted for it, but not all the other guys have. So they right, go, oh, right, this right, is bull. Right. Like, I did it, yeah, 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 but also A, B, C, and D were in on it with me. <laughs> That's what they have to get off their chest. Right, they, they, right, it's not right. like a sense of human emotion. In fact, it's interesting you ask that because one of my cooperators, I don't want to say who, but I got him to come in and speak to my class one time. I surprised them. I gave them, <laughs> I gave them his trial transcript, and I said, the FBI agent who handled this guy is going to come in on Monday. You guys can ask him anything you want. And then he walked in with the cooperator. And they were oh, like, wow. oh, shit. Oh. And, oh, sorry. I don't know if you can curse. <laughs> no, you no, can yeah, curse. Yeah, yeah, of course. Soprano curse as much show. as you want. Yeah, yeah. 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 Oh, I sh I've been missing my opportunities. All the <laughs> no, no, no. Well, make, up, make up for it. Make up for it. I'll try. Um, so one of the students asked this guy, she goes, uh, do, you, do you feel guilty at night that you killed another human being? Like, how do you, you know, does that, does that upset you? And he goes, it was great. This is why he was such a good trial witness. He just goes, look. He goes, I'm not going to lie to you and tell you, like, I sit there and cry my eyes out before I go to bed. He goes, but, like, looking back at it now, I'm a much older guy, and do I wish I didn't kill him? Sure. He's like, it got me in trouble. <laughs> He's like, but, but, you know, do I tear myself apart, like, for being a bad human? No, it was the life I was in, and, uh, and that, that was, you have to understand the environment that I was in at the time. So he was kind of right, very right. matter-of-fact about it. Um, so, you know, I had another guy, by the way, that they asked him, uh, another guy who a student asked, so this guy had not committed a murder, but he had done a bunch of robberies and beatings. And a student asked, would you have killed for the boss if, if he asked you to? And this guy said, Ed, it's a great line. I don't know if he pre-planned this or why. I don't think he did. He goes, well, he goes, it's one thing to eat sushi. He goes, it's another thing to walk down to the river and grab a salmon and take a bite out of it. <laughs> I was like, wow, okay. I see what you're saying. He's like, I'm not sure I was ready to take that step. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So anyway. Uh, we know your uh, you, we know your time is short. Um, let's do like a more of a lightning round, like a few more things. But um, d uh, so like one of the things on the on Sopranos is um to you know get around being bugged. Junior and Tony often meet in his doctor's office, and then it ends up getting bugged. Is is that legal? Is that and is that something that you saw? Yeah, I mean, we would bug anything. Um, right, I mean, I guess right. you have to be a little bit careful in a doctor's office because there's, like, doctor-patient privilege. But, yeah, right. guys, the, look, the most common place these guys meet to avoid being bugged is a lawyer's office because it's really hard to bug a lawyer's office. The other thing they do is they do right, walk right. and talks. I mean, you see this on the show, but yeah, where they yeah, walk yeah, yeah. slowly around the block together. But, I mean, we bugged the restaurant I told you about. We once bugged – well, we didn't bug the – we had, we wired up a guy who th they were – they, the the this crew would have their regular meetings in a bowling alley in Fairlawn, New Jersey, because the captain of the crew, Angelo Prisco, was not allowed to leave New Jersey. He was on federal probation or something. So the crew would meet in a bowling alley, and we had one of the guys wired up 
And so the tapes were like every every two and a half seconds you'd hear pin pins getting knocked out. It was yeah. horrible. Yeah. You know, you had to be like, did you, did you hear about the <laughs> with the? It was like, oh my god. Um, but yeah, no, they definitely are surveillance conscience conscious, and uh, I think me, something like meeting at a doctor's office strikes me as being very realistic. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, uh, courtroom sketches. Uh, did you ever have like a courtroom sketch of yourself that you were like that doesn't? Did, did, were you ever like that doesn't look like me, or uh, or that looks uh, like a little too like me? If you guys Google Ellie Honig courtroom sketch or something like that, Gotti, you'll see a few and like. <laughs> when I looked at them, I was like, oh, my God, I'm a hideous monster. <laughs> but, um, uh, yeah, no, it's kind of cool to have them. I never actually ordered one. The, the, the way, the oh, you can, you can order them? Sell them for, for like 500 bucks or something. That's how oh, they make wow. a living. Oh, that's hilarious. Um, so one them. of these days I should buy one. The best one I, it's not online. The best one is like a jury box full of guys we had just arrested in a Gambino case and I'm like pointing into the jury box at all of them but there's other ones online where I look totally bizarre and freakish but uh it's <laughs> nice, good for laughing. nice nice yeah um uncle junior on the show like famously like tries to pass himself as um you know not competent to stand trial these these older guys that you would prosecute was that like a pretty common route that their legal team would take yeah, never came really? to play with my older guys. I mean, famously, uh, Vinny the Chin Gigante did it in like the '90s. He was he was the the bathroom the right. guy in the bathrobe, right, yeah. right, right, exactly. But no, since then I haven't heard of one. Now these guys, I mean, they had a bit of pride to them, and I think it probably would have been frowned upon by the family if someone had done that. But um, right, not Speaking yeah. Of- I, I, I did plenty of older guy uh, cases and never saw that. Speaking of the pride situation, uh, another like famous thing on the show is that the character Johnny Sack has to go through an uh, allocution. Is that is that something that you dealt with? Or that or scene that was that scene rare. was dead on accurate because whenever someone is ready to plead guilty, the, the real old school guys are are not even supposed to ever plead guilty. Forget mm-hmm. right, right? Because you don't want to admit the whole idea is that like that people are mad at him because he admits that the thing exists. Right, and there's always this dance where we, the prosecutors, want to get them to admit that they're in the mob family. They never will, but then we charge them with RICO, and so the judge says, were you a member of an enterprise in fact? And they always want to say, I associated with individuals, but they don't want to acknowledge the enterprise. It's like this game, and it's kind of meaningless, but we want to get them to admit as much as they can. They want to admit as little as they can, but exactly that scene is dead on accurate because there's this back and forth where he doesn't want to say it, but he tries to find some softer way to say it and his lawyer's trying to help him. And, but sometimes the judge just says, listen, we part of this enterprise or not. And Mm. so uh, they get in trouble if they do admit that, but yeah, that scene is really accurate. Yeah. Um, Most importantly, um, I was required by my fiance because you, you and she went to the same sleepaway camp, summer camp. Uh, yes. Uh, and you were, uh, so I'm getting married a month from today. And my future brother-in-law, you were his camp counselor at Camp Laurelwood. <laughs> What's his name? Max Podell. I love you Max Podell. Him? That's awesome. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So Corey Wait, Podell. Wait, so are you his, marrying Cody older... Podell? I'm marrying uh, his older sister, Corey Podell. What? Oh, my God. I kind of. I remember her but max was like max was like my favorite camper he's a great kid that's hilarious yeah, i mean i haven't seen him since have, he was nine 
You don't have to say that. I mean, he he really hasn't grown up much since he was nine. No, years it is true. He was he was like the I I would say if he was a, a schmucky kid, I would say it. He was not a schmucky <laughs> kid. He was Very an nice. awesome kid. I'm happy to say it on record. Uh, good to hear. That's uh, great. Paul, you have one more question. Yeah, I want to. I want to wrap it up now. After seeing the entirety of the series and seeing everything that Tony did, all the acts he committed, and everything he did to maneuver uh, himself away from uh, getting implicated in these crimes, and with the ambiguous ending, the cut to black, uh, what what do you think the like percentage odds are that Tony Soprano, if he didn't die that night at Holston's at the diner in the season finale, that he would uh, that he would eventually go to prison and perhaps even die in prison? Oh, ninety-eight percent. I mean, wow. you, cannot, you you cannot yeah, survive yeah. that long with that. I mean, all the murders the guy committed. Oh my God. Sure. Um, right. No, I mean, you, you can't survive that long without having heat on you. And the thing is, look, m- law enforcement targets mob bosses. It's one of the few areas where we ever target people, right? Usually, you, you you're supposed to find the crime and then figure out who did it. But it, mm. when you're prosecuting the mob, you go, okay, who are the bosses? Let's try to get him on something. Um, so they would have gotten to Tony. Someone would have flipped on him. And by the way, I thought you were going a different direction, which is what are the chances he would have flipped? And I feel like there's a mm. there's a decent chance Tony would have flipped, which would have would would have been an interesting coda to the whole thing because he was kind because of because of his family. Yeah, because of his family and because he was kind of disgusted with everything and everybody and right. everything right. about it. Um, right. right. And so that would have been uh, if they had to do a sequel, then I, I could see it being like Tony Flip. But obviously that'll never happen. But uh, yeah. I guess we do have the prequel coming, right? That's right. We do, yeah. Yeah, exactly. I couldn't be more in on anything that, that a, a, a <laughs> Sopranos prequel set in Newark, New Jersey. Oh, I'm in. I trust I trust David Chase. I think it's going to be good. Um, oh, one one more very quick thing. Um did mobsters ever send you uh, deli platters to the office? <laughs> Any care packages? No, but uh, I have a couple of the best things that I have, have that I took with me that I still have in my office are, are things that my cooperators gave me. So one of them was a really good sketch artist. Like he would draw. He was in jail. And so he drew this series of like really cool pictures, I guess, of me and of other people. They were in like fictionalized settings. Like in, it was kind of like he was doing courtroom sketches. Um, of of scenes he imagined. I guess I guess maybe it was based on him being in court with me. Um, and right, so I right. still have those on my wall. But the best thing I have is one of my cooperators when he was in jail put together a a cookbook of recipes, <laughs> of Italian recipes, and he somehow oh, got amazing. it bound and all this, and he gave it to me. He came in for a proffer meeting one day, and he goes, "I made this for. I put this together for you, and I still have it, and I've actually used it. Like the recipes are really good." Um, wow, he, wow. he owned a restaurant before before we flipped him, and so uh, I still wow. have his his jail made cookbook in my office <laughs> on my shelf. Uh, Ellie, uh, thank you so much for coming on. This was awesome. This was great. Um, man. um and uh, yeah, you guys, uh, do you have anything you want to plug? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, yeah, I feel like I feel like you're you're on. Uh, I turn on CNN and you're on there, so I, I feel like you, we we see you up. Um, nah, just, you know, yeah, turn on CNN. Hopefully you'll catch me. I'm on almost every, every Sunday night at like 540. I do a segment where I take questions from, from the crowd. It's called cross exam with Ellie Honig. So very nice. And, and if you don't, uh, if, if you guys don't follow Ellie on Twitter, um, at Ellie Honig, you're, you're a great follow, especially in, in this day and age with all the 
for uh, sure. The president's legal troubles. You you uh, <laughs> you shine an interesting light on everything. So, um, uh, uh, someone said to me recently. Oh, you found your natural wise ass voice on Twitter. So uh, I, 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 <laughs> <laughs> I agree. I agree. Uh, Ellie, thank you so much. Thank Thanks, you. guys. I appreciate, appreciate it. it. Take care. Peace. Bye bye. All right. Uh, thank you again uh, to Ellie Honig. That was awesome. Um, that was so cool. Just blew my mind a little yeah. bit. Yeah. Um, Great. As always, uh, you guys can hit us up um, at. Osopranospod at gmail.com. Uh, let us know questions, concerns you have, things that we're doing right, things that we're doing wrong. Shut your mouth, dude. We don't need to hear about that. <laughs> we don't need uh, Tiger Kid 6 on our hands. <laughs> yeah, Tiger Kid 6. If you're still listening to the pod, fuck you. I hope until the very last episode, we still have spite for this guy. We still just, re- like, the one oh, guy who left a bad review on our podcast. I don't let anything go, so it, I'm gonna hate this He's guy also forever. apologized already <laughs> and left a good review, Not enough. so. Not no, enough. Now dead to us. Dead. Uh, you can also, you can always hit us up on Instagram, on Twitter, at Pod. We're really, you know, we're trying to, uh, Get some more of our, our meme work going on on the Instagram. So if you enjoy uh, memes that are Sopranos related, <laughs> hit us up on the Instagram. Oh, I do. <laughs> I love Joe memes. Loves, Joe loves memes. Uh, and as always, thank you for listening. Oh, oh. Oh. Mother, don't you recognize your son? 